certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. If it weren't for a bizarre set of circumstances, Jane Rimmer may have never been found. Today in court, a witness tearfully recounted the day when picking flowers led her to a woman's body. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation with Tim Clark and Alison Fan, who are both calling in from Supreme Court, which has wrapped up very late in the day today. Yes, it did, Nat, yeah. Um, and that was because they were basically tying up all the loose ends before um, the Christmas and New Year break. Um, so they didn't want to come back tomorrow just for sort of 20 minutes, half an hour worth. So yep. um, they basically sat a little bit later tonight to get it all done. And um, and then, so yes, we're, we're done for, for this year. Um, um, and we were given a... a, a you know, a good indication of what's to come early next yeah. year, which we'll uh, which we'll discuss later. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll talk about that later and um, give everyone a heads up of what to expect in the new year. All right. Well, let's dive into today's evidence. Can you talk us through the unusual events events which led to the discovery in Wellard of Jane's body? There's been some fairly bizarre um, series of events, almost supernatural. The way the animals yeah. are playing a big part. We had the horse that reared up, and today we had a rooster or a chicken or a chook as the witness described it run across the car that made them slam on the brakes and stop and the kids got out to um chase the the chicken and the mother said well you know i'll just go and look pick a couple of lilies over there and then lo and behold she stumbles on jane's body a very very gruesome discovery for this mother of um three children she had friends with her as well and um, as we were saying earlier, first we had a horse that reared up and now we have a rooster that stops right there yeah. um, where the body is found. Yeah, it was it was heartbreaking, really, the, the testimony today. Um, the lady was obviously still Very distressed, huge, yeah. hugely yes. upset about it. I mean, and, and as soon as it got to that point of the discovery, basically, as Ali said, this, this chook had run off, the kids had run off, um, and she was in the car and just spotted these arum lilies or the... Or, also called death lilies, mm, and yeah. basically went into the verge to pick a couple, and then she, she said something, something glittered, or something yeah. just just caught it, something out of the corner of her eye, and she said she'd seen the biggest lily that she'd ever seen. So that she made mm. her way over there, leaned in to pick it, as we've mentioned before, only a couple of meters off the road, and felt something brush the back of her leg. She thought it was a stick or a bit mm-hmm. of foliage looked round and it was a foot and oh. um, a human foot um, and then she said obviously I just you know I wasn't really registering what I was seeing but I followed the foot up and the body and and realised what, what you know the, the horrifying thing that was in front of me and basically stepped back onto the road started calling for her husband he came in basically didn't believe her at the time said well no it must yeah. be an animal must be a sheep or something he went in took a quick look came back out went in again and basically found that what his wife had seen that he was seeing as well and so and then as Ali mentioned again as they came back out on the road this is when this this couple um, on horseback that we've heard about before they were there um this this lady Tammy um basically said no I want to stay here she she basically got her dog out of the car her husband went off to get help 
and um, and then the police arrived um, in due course. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was heartbreaking, really. Was Tammy? Um, I mean, it must have been very distressing. Was she upset giving this testimony today? She was. She was very upset. Yeah, she was crying. She had to stop a few times and um, very distressed. But she told how she stayed there while her husband went to the nearby riding school, came back with um, a, few, a few others. and um, But she stayed there with the body, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And she, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, she was obviously distressed then and still distressed more than 20 years on today. Mm. Um, I had to compose herself um several times um during the testimony but she did get through it and she and she gave a very clear recollection of, yeah. of what she'd found um as you you might um, might expect because that is that is not a moment that you'd ever forget um once you'd experienced it um and she, she just basically described after the discovery staying there waiting for the police to come um getting in the car um, and she had a sort of very clear recollection of, of the exact spot. She was asked to sort of spot it on a map, and yeah. she did that, um, um, you know, it, almost immediately and almost exactly um, to where the other descriptions have been. Were they asked if they touched anything? Yeah, they, they were. were. Yeah. yeah, they were, and that's obviously a very important um, piece because of 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 the forensic evidence to come on the body, um, and they were all very clear. Um, both witnesses, both Mr. and Mrs. Evans, were very clear that the only tiny touch was was that brush on the calf that mm-hmm. actually alerted Mrs. Evans to the um, to the body there. Um, but other than that, they said they kept their distance um, quite deliberately by the sound of it. I mean, who yes. who, who yeah. would want to get too yes. close? Obviously, yeah. um, um, but um, that they were also very clear on 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 what they they did do and certainly what they didn't do and just sitting there listening to this in court today i mean it almost sounds completely unbelievable this chain of events that have have led to the discovery of jane's body almost some sort of you know strange fate well, or I'm, yes I, I remember the day clearly when we were told about it because we all rushed out there we were all, all at another conference and uh, when we heard about it we raced out there and i remember sort of remember it clearly because i took the undercarriage of my car um, oh. wrecked it um, because it was over limestone. It was a very rural area, fairly, you know, the, the area around it and the roadway, etc. And I remember yeah. damaging damaging the bottom of my car. So I remember, well, that was when Jane's body was found at Willard, yeah. Yeah. It was quite a... Sh- well, it was, it, that was when everybody knew there was a Clermont serial killer um, not just a one-off that Sarah had um, maybe disappeared. That was when they really got serious. And I'm curious, Ali, back then, did you have any of these kind of details about how... No. no, 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 we had nothing. Um, police kept it all very, very quiet. And, uh, in fact, what we're hearing now are investigations going on, like the fact that they checked the uh, airports for Sarah having maybe gone overseas. We didn't hear any of that. They... Um, kept mm. everything very quiet, um, and I guess it wasn't until Jane went that they really started looking seriously at um, a serial killer. Yeah, so it, it was obviously um, quite a difficult day in court because you also heard from the man who stumbled across um, the body of the third victim, Kira Glennon. Yeah, that was also um, quite harrowing uh, listening. That um, this was a. a a chap again that it was just 
pure chance that he he was even out there on that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically said that he his girlfriend was at work. He'd borrowed um, her car, and he was basically going out, uh, in his words, to look for something that he shouldn't have been looking for. Which when, what was that? Where pressed gently, he said he was out there looking for some wild-grown cannabis plants. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he'd found bits and bobs, but nothing to write home about until, obviously, um, a little way off this 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 beaten track, Pippadini Road, which, once again, at the time, back in 97, was very rural. Um, and he just wand- he wandered off. He said first he could smell something mm-hmm. really bad. Um, and then he said, look, I'm, I'm a nosy type of bloke, so I went to have a look. Um, and that's when he found... Um, the, the, the remains under cross-examination he actually said that he thought it might have been a kangaroo mm-hmm. when he was out bushwalking and doing these other activities that if he did find uh, the body of a kangaroo he would always check the pouch for for joeys for the for the little babies oh. which are sometimes left in there so which is why he went over but he said he got within two meters and realized that this was this was something a, a lot worse um pull some bush back to basically check what he what he thought he was seeing was was what he was seeing, and he did that, and then he basically said, once he confirmed it in his own head, he he dropped and ran. He he basically got back in his car, whipped over to where his girlfriend worked, about five minutes away, and called the police. Um, and then some uniformed officers turned up, and then detectives turned up, and he took them back to the scene. Um, mm. And that was, the, I mean, that was basically the crux of his evidence, but. You know, what was the I'm, terrain I'm, like there? Did was he asked to describe it? Or? Yeah, it's sort of, sort of low. I mean, typical West Australia, the Australiana sort of low scrub bush, not dense forest, but you know what used to be called black boys. But they're they're a sort of a grass tree that that, that are quite thick, but but um, you know not they wouldn't cover. The, the the ground area there and, and some effort as we've heard previously heard some effort had been made to try and cover the body um but not, obviously not well enough that it wasn't um noticeable Ali, um, sorry um to, Ali, do you recall the day um when kira glennon was found yes of course yeah absolutely um because i'd become quite close to the glennon family um, and, yeah, it was horrible. Well, it was just puzzling because it was from one extreme to the other. You had Jane Rimmer right down south, and then you had Kira um, north, mm. and, of course, Sarah has never been found, so we don't know where she is. Yeah, and looking back in the archives of the mm. newspaper archives, as I've done sort of on various days throughout the trial, Matt, um, the, the headline on the morning of uh, the morning after Kira's body was discovered. Yeah. Um, was the state is in mourning, um, and uh, I mean that really brings oh, that it just home. Gave me, yeah, how shivers. big, how big a, a discovery this was, and I mean to be fair, there was a little bit of sniggering in court when Mr. Atkinson, who's the the chap that um, discovered Kira's body, started giving his evidence. Mm. But for, uh, but I mean, if you consider it, but for him. Yes. Um, she might never have been found. And it's another one of those sliding door moments that we just keep repeating, just the chance thing that he just happened to go into, you know, 10 metres down the road or 10 metres yeah. further back, he might not have seen 
um, what he saw. Um, and the most poignant moment for me of the day was on his way out, after he's given his evidence, he just took a t- very brief moment just to shake Dennis Glennon's hand as he walked past. Mm. Um, and um, uh, someone who I didn't see it myself, but someone who was in court who did see it, said that Dennis just smiled thank you to him oh, as, oh. as he walked out. So, oh. um, as you say, it's just one of those... those um, Tiny, moment, tiny yeah. moments yeah. in time that has, that has had the discovery that's had such repercussions for yeah. so many people for so many years. In Claremont, the, the night that Kira disappeared, we've been talking through this podcast, and Tim, you've mentioned them a few times, the Burger Boys, mm. and we've been waiting yes. to hear what they saw, and, and today um, they gave their testimonies? Yeah, well, two of them did, Nat. Yes, there were three on the night, um, but but two of those um, gentlemen, school friends, um, we found out today from uh, a northern suburb of Perth called Balga, uh, which is just around the corner from where I live, um, working class suburb, and, mm-hmm. and they said that, uh, that that was probably their first ever night out in Claremont, certainly at the yeah. Conti. They said they'd never been there before, um, and, and, and what a night they chose, because yeah. um, they basically described how they gone in, um, enjoyed a few beers, enjoyed each other's company, kept themselves to themselves, and then um, basically at closing time um, uh, Mr Bond, who was the first witness, was asked, you know, how are you feeling? And he said hungry. <laughs> um, so that's where they ended up at Hungry Jack's, which is just around the corner. And for or, people on the East Coast, that's the equivalent of Burger King. Yes, yeah, yeah that's right. So Burger King overseas, Hungry Jack's here. Um, and uh, yeah, so they took a little laneway down there, got their food, and then rather than sit in, they decided to have a, a bit of fresh air while they uh, while they enjoyed their food. And so they sat on the bus stop, um, which for people in Perth, um, Western Australia, if you haven't driven down Stirling Highway and, and, and passed that bus stop um, to and from Fremantle, then you basically haven't lived in yeah. Western Australia. Because, I mean, everyone in Western Australia would have made that journey at one time or the other. Yes. Um, so that, that's where they sat. And um, over the course of the five, ten minutes, they noticed a young lady on the other side of the road walking um, south or towards the Fremantle, sort of left to right, as they would have been viewing it. Um, and uh, as we've discussed before, one of the, one of the group, um, the, the second guy to give evidence today, actually said he was so um, shocked because he saw her or thought he saw her putting her hand up in the uh, in the Extending universal that, yeah, right. sign to, yeah. to hitchhike, um, which given what had happened in Claremont over the you know the, the preceding fourteen months, he was staggered with. Yes, um, and then he also said that he noticed a car, um, a white station wagon, and he was very clear on the description, and we'll get to that in a minute. Driving very or slower than much slower than the speed limit, he remembered seeing it going in the same direction as he'd seen this young lady. Um, walking so that was that i mean that was the, the the crux of the um crux of the evidence um but uh, as the car and the lady sort of disappeared into the distance um they also one of one of the number mr bond said he he saw her um that car stopped and he saw the lady which we think is kira uh, leaning into that car and why had they noticed this car particularly they were just well, sitting there watching, weren't they? they yeah. was, and it was very, very quiet. They said there was no traffic. 
uh, they spotted her on her own, which prompted mm. him to call out, um, you know, your stupid hitchhiking, of which she said the girl just threw her arms up like, you know, mind your own business type mm. of thing and kept walking. Um, and so he said there's no traffic around. They were just sitting, enjoying their burger and just staring across the street yeah. where she was, just right on the other side of the street near the intersection. And um, that's how they took note of everything. Yeah, and then the second second of the the boys, the Burger Boys, he said he had a particular interest in VS uh, Holden Commodores at the That's time. That's right. Yes. Oh, he was, what an he amazing driving, um, description. Yeah. yeah, he was driving um, uh, a, a car not not as prestigious at the time, shall we say? And uh, I, I think it was that was his that was his his wish to maybe get hold of one of these Commodores. Um, and, a, and it was a particular type of Commodore that he was that he was interested in. And lo and behold, it, it, he said it was this particular type of Commodore that was driving past. White, but with a distinctive white bumper that matched the paintwork rather than a two-tone yeah. bumper as you normally get. Oh. And also a distinctive type of hubcap, which he described as having a teardrop motif on it. And some, um, uh, some slating, some shallow sort of grooves in between this um these teardrops and so they were a particular type of hubcap and a particular type of bumper and he was very distinctive and he said i'm pretty sure that that is a vs or a a vr series one or two commodore white which we've heard so much about because that is the 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 type of commodore that the prosecutors say that mr ed was driving at the time as a telstra issued car but the one thing that he was asked about and did didn't have any memory of was any insignia or logo or branding yeah. mm. or livery oh, on the side cool. of this car. He said he could not re- remember seeing any sort of logo, be it Telstra or Telecom or otherwise, on this car. But everything else that he described was in uh, immaculate detail, given given the uh, given. To be fair, the amount of beers he'd had on the night yeah. and also the amount of uh, time that has passed since. Yeah, well, he's clearly a car buff and it's caught his attention and he's remembered these details. Um, did that pretty much match up with, apart from the fact that there was no Telstra logos, did it match up with other descriptions of cars, basically? Well, he was cross-examined by um, defence lawyer Paul Jovic, who, and he did concede that the model that he described also matched could have matched two or three other uh, types of um, white Commodores. Yeah. Uh, he he wasn't quite sure when the colour-coded bumper and that sort of thing was, if it was just restricted to the one he talked about, it could have been another two or three. So um, he did concede that. But, of course, it did contrast starkly with what <clears throat> one of the other eyewitnesses described Kira getting into. As, a, as we uh, heard, he talked about a Ford Ute with a canopy over it. We haven't heard that before, have we? No, we haven't. It was absolutely a bombshell because he he also insisted that he saw uh, a woman describing, uh, sort of matching Kira's description, get into the, uh, to this Ute with the guy holding the tailgate Mm. up the back. So that was just so bizarre. And then Paul Jovic said to him, so you know Ford? He said, yes, I worked with Ford for a while so he knew his sport and he was adamant this was another fellow who was driving well he wasn't driving as a passenger with his wife again uh, near the intersection of Stirling Highway and Bayview Terrace is this yeah. the wife who was driving home the husband from the pub 
No, uh, no, they they'd been watching the football. Oh. Um, and driving so a friend home. They're going in the yeah, other direction. There was um, yeah. there was an AFL particular AFL football match um, yeah. on for our international listeners. AFL is Australian rules football, so that's the sort of indigenous football code that uh, that is basically a religion in Western Australia for about nine months <laughs> a year, and most of the other country. Um, I looked it up actually. It was a uh, an old ANSET Cup match um, semi final, um, mm. which is which was the old pre season game. Um, uh, Geelong won by a point for anyone that's <laughs> taking uh, that's taking particular notes. But so <laughs> that game these really that are night. excellent details. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of homework. Um, yeah, and and that had and that had finished quite late. And as we'd heard in testimony yesterday. Um, these boys had, uh, friends had been having a, uh, quite a few drinks. Um, and then basically the friend, well, according to the wife, wouldn't leave and she had to get him to leave. And so to get him to leave, she offered to give him a lift home. So that's what they were doing on Sterling Highway. Um, and yeah, and Ali's right. It was a complete outlier. The description of the car, the description of the make. Um, I mean, the description of the, the lady that he saw was, was, was consistent or was somewhat mm. consistent to mm-hmm. everyone else, but the car was, was a complete outlier. And, and basically, I mean, I think that goes to some of the rough edges that Mr. Jovic was yes. talking about in his opening and that we've mentioned before that, um, I mean, obviously these witnesses uh, have been um, filtered somewhat um, uh, um, in terms of the sightings. Um, but this one, as, as you say, maybe proves that it's not, complete and sort of neat little package that um, that the prosecutors would, would hope to uh, hope to paint. Well, what you do have, is, as often happens, you've got, what, about a dozen witnesses all seeing completely different things, yeah. and the discrepancies is, what I find interesting is the men can describe hubcaps right down to the <laughs> yes. design, yet they couldn't tell what she had on. I mean, yeah. as far as jewellery, no, no jewellery, bags, or wall sides, where the women hone in and said, we don't know what car really it was, but um, she was wearing such and such jewellery. Yeah. She had a chain yeah. on her handbag. Length of the skirt a, and the colour of the hair. The size and of the whole yes. lot. They knew exactly what. In fact, one poor guy who was asked, was it a black jacket or a cardigan? And to him, he couldn't tell the difference. because <laughs> He said, well, a jacket to him is a suit jacket with lapels. So yeah. anything else was a cardigan. In, you know, in the global picture, as we touched on with Tom Percy last week, I mean, they I mean, they're details that are interesting day to day, but whether it's going to be the, the you know, the, the, the straw that breaks the prosecutor's yeah. back, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't have thought mm. so. Well, it, no. it really did jump around today, and we've actually had some listen, listeners commenting on that and saying, mm. you know, it can be quite difficult to follow because it's not in any kind of chronological order and, and witnesses are pulled from all over the place and all different times of, of the events and what have you. And again, today, that was exactly the case, right, because you were sort of tying up these loose ends. Mm. So going back in time, you heard from an officer who worked in the sexual assault squad um, what was that in relation to? Yeah, so she was the officer that was... So uh, to put it into context, she was um, June 1996, she began on that squad. So that's... We know by that time Sarah is already missing and Jane's, Jane's body has already been discovered. Um, she was tasked by the macro task force, which is basically the task force that was set up when they... The, the, the fears of a serial killer on the loose in Perth were, were you know, basically um, confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had been tasked to re-interview the victim of the rape in Karakata from early 95. So yeah. that's an interesting um, 
tidbit in itself that um, that the, the connection. Yes. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, Ali, but the connection between I, that rape was never really publicly made. There was hints of it, and in and I'm, I know in the paper we we, we no, drew some comparisons, right. no, but yeah. I, but it was never formally confirmed by Macro at the time. Um, that, that you know that was part of their investigation, but we know today that in June, um, a, an officer was basically said, "Go and re-interview her. Go and mm. get as much detail as you can," because you know we obviously think there might be a connection. And so they, this was this officer's um, testimony today about going to re-interview, but more importantly, getting the exhibits from that crime, which include the, the, the shorts that we've already discussed are crucial, going and picking those, physically picking those up from the evidence, um, a lock-up in a police HQ in Perth and um, taking them away. So she was questioned quite extensively about whether she opened bags or didn't open bags and how she labelled and the processes there. What did you learn from that? Well, we learned I mean, that the defence honing in very, very, well, very closely. Yeah, that's, I mean that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. in in terms of the trial, we've learned, uh, and we probably knew it before, but we certainly know it now that that's that that's where ninety percent of the focus Crucial. is going to be on Crucial. on who mm. on who who handled what, um, where they got it from, who labelled it, who they gave it to next, and in this particular case, she was questioned several times what did you open the bags did you check what was in the bags because there was some little confusion about how many items there were so mm. these, were, these were basically the clothes um and and um that were left behind or, or who were on the victim of caracata including the hospital pants that she was put into after she was discovered right. and also this this cord that was left yes. on her to bind her arms this was all obviously seized at the time either from the site or from her in person put into evidence bags and stored. Certainly um, very a lengthy, co- lengthy cross-examination, probably the longest we've seen for Jovic. Yeah, yeah, uh, probably. Today, and, yeah. And, and, and he was trying to discover, obviously, um, where she got them from, yes. at what time she got them from, how she signed them out, and, again, m- most importantly, whether she opened the bags, because... We was, know she, was she that adamant that she hadn't? She or? was adamant that she hadn't. She was adamant that she'd never opened an evidence bag in all her time in the police force. She's, she's a retired police officer now, um, but she'd worked in serious crime, sex crime, ch- you know, child sex crime. Yeah, she was yeah. adamant that she'd never done it, um, ever, um, because she took her what was in the bag descriptions from the from the labelling and the way it was logged in these books, uh, if you can imagine, a green leather-bound book that they used to hand write I mean it's it's almost unfathomable now that they they'd hand write all the all the different evidence exhibits and logs and numbers and who signed them and who had them when in longhand in person in a book and there it would stay and and we saw pictures of that book today there was a they, there was mention of a, a quite an early um, adopter sort of primitive computer system that was just coming in at the time um, so that might play into some of the prosecution's sort of, um, uh, you know, cross-examination about, you know, where certain exhibits were at certain times and whether they were logged on the computer. Yeah. Um, but as I said, it was it was it was a taster, really, yes. a flavour of, of of what's to come. Would it be sort of the first time you would say that? I guess you've seen a witness really. I mean, I, I, I guess people say see them grilled. Yeah, put under a certain amount of pressure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Today's was yes. 
Um, and I'm just curious about, there was a statement read in by the Australian Border Force. Was there anything um, interesting there or unusual there? Yeah, so that was to concerning, uh, not as you might imagine, if if Miss Spears or Miss Glennon or Miss Rimmer had been abroad, but more um, the Edwards family, whether they'd been abroad, oh. and and this goes to um, way back in the in the first week, we heard that Mister Mister and Mrs Edwards, um, uh, Bradley Edwards's mother and father, they were in they were in Indonesia, they were in uh, overseas at a certain point. Um, which which meant that he had would have because he would have moved he'd moved out of the marital home at that time and gone to live with them, um, and so th- and those dates correlate to a, some sort of the time um, over when the the, um, the later murders were committed, and so it's basically to show that he would have been home alone or he would have been mm-hmm. uh, alone at a home. Um, during that time, and to do that, they produced this travel right. document, which 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 shows Mr. and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Edwards um, overseas. Extraordinary details, aren't there? I mean, they've gone to unbelievable lengths to to snatch all these details from all these yeah, various but that's departments. What, that's what you have to do, now. I mean, it's yeah. all very well saying it in an opening, and us all writing it down and getting reported, and the judge hearing it, but. As uh, anyone who covers court or attends court for any length of time will hear, hear a an, a defence lawyer say in every opening, the opening is not an evidence. The yes. evidence is the evidence, and that was the evidence of that. That's what you've got to do. You've got to produce a document to show that these the, whoever whomever it might be was abroad or wasn't abroad. Yes. I mean, st- you know, we we heard we got medical records today from from Mr. Edwards' first wife as well to show, so their Medicare cards, which is the equivalent of, you know, the, the National Health Service in the UK, or um, to show when her doctor's appointments were and when she claimed those Medicare mm. payments on those doctor's appointments and the, and the sonogram for her baby. So we know when that doctor's appointment was, which feeds into when she might have told Mr. Yes. Edwards he was pregnant, which feeds into when he might have being emotionally upset. So, because there was conflicting um, evidence with that particular information, yeah, wasn't well, there? Was there? Some, there was some confusion over timings, yes. But, yeah. you know, once you've got that document that shows the absolute date, then, um, you know, that that's, you know, pretty redoubtable proof. Yeah. Okay, so and court... The, yeah, sorry, Ali. No, I was just saying, and the judge, too, Justice Hall, is picking up on things, too. He's uh, from both counsel. He's yeah. His eyes, his, his eyes yeah, detail he's right is, on, is yeah, incredible. Totally. It really yeah. is. I mean, you know, amidst the, the, the ton of information that he's had to process in the last month, he was the first one in court to pick up that there was a oh, difference yeah. between the number of um, exhibits um, in that log, and that green log book. When he said, uh, was it two or was it from? He picked her up on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there, no, was, there was a slight difference in the number of exhibits in that green log book to, to the receipt. Mm. So when you take out the um, exhibits or used to take out the exhibits from that um, that strongholding at the police HQ, you'd get a receipt to say when who, who'd taken it, what you'd taken mm. and how many exhibits. Yeah. And there was eight on the one and seven on the other. Mm. And without, you know, it, it, no one else had picked it up. <laughs> in court, and he banged straight on it. Why is that? Yep. Um, Mr. Hollingsworth, who's one of the other mm. barristers, and um, he was coming to it, obviously, but um, it, it just goes to show just the power of concentration yes. of, of someone at that level of um, 
of um, judiciary. Jewish, yeah, <laughs> the, at that level of the judiciary, the the this, the smart and the concentration you have to have is uh, is second to none, really. Well, one of our podcast listeners has actually sent in a um, question about that and and marvelled at how Justice Hall can retain all this information and wanted to know: is there some kind of a um, you know, spreadsheet, this Excel spreadsheet where he goes away and puts all this information into. Well, he's staring uh, at his computer quite intently, yes, and he's got yeah. yeah. And he takes notes, and oh, look, I mean, he, he's got the backup of uh, two what they so-called associates, which are basically his staff members. Mm. Um, he gets the transcript of the the court proceeding every day, but we we uh, as in the media room, we're getting that as well, and we're up to three very thick A4 mm. binders already thrown yes. into, into into week four. Yeah, um, he gets all the exhibits, obviously. Um, so he, as much as we've said it's a trial by judge alone, it's not, it's not really. Yeah. He has got backup, but it's it's oh no, it's it up is to him, him entirely. It yeah. is him on his own in yeah. terms of actually making the rulings Decision. and making the, yeah. the 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 um the decisions on the law and basic and, and at the end of the day on on guilt and innocence. And analyse absolutely every every statement that he makes, why he's saying this and what, you know, the outcome. Yeah. So that's a lot of documents to consider at the end of oh, it. Yes. Okay, so court will wrap up um, now until January the 6th. Correct. And were you given a um, brief indication of what we would expect when we first come back? Yes, we were. We were told that um, after the uh, two civilian witnesses that um, the prosecution needs to call because they're unwell or unavailable at the moment. They'll go into the scientific, the, the fibres, the DNA, the expert witnesses. And, and I think they said right through January, right through February before the prosecution will even probably look at ending its um, case. Oh, mate, very optimistic. I'm being so, uh, Yeah, so um, there was a brief bit of timetabling. Um, so the... the, 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 the January the 6th, we're back. The first month or that whole month will basically be taken up with um, the two um, burial sites. So, yes. oh, um, yes. so Jane, mm. Jane will be first, mm. obviously in first in time. And that will go right through from the very first officer, police officer that mm. attended. All of those will be called, all the forensic officers, the, the, pe- the people that recorded the scene digitally, uh, mm. photographically at the time and, and videotaped it. Then there, there will be the removal of the body, which will, which will include undertakers um, and funeral directors. Um, and then we'll go through all the, the exact same process with Kira's um, uh, discovery and burial site. So that's going to be a month, yep. basically, of, of that type of evidence. And then we, we'll, we will get into fibres first, we think, and DNA. And that's going to be at least a month each probably more because that as we've said so many times yeah. that is that is the heart that is the heart of this case and um, just a little aside um, the defense is is calling its own experts on the fiber on the fibers mm. and they their expert has been working through the night for many many months and his report that uh, to the defense is due to them only on this coming Friday, December the 20th. That's the, that's when they will get it in their hands. And then they've got to um, disclose that to the prosecution, which will basically be the defence telling the prosecution, this is going to be our case on the fibres. 
and Miss Barbara Gallo flag today, we're, we're still unsure as how long that portion of the trial will take because we really don't know the defence. Right. But what Mr Jovic said today, confirmed today, is they're not going to be really arguing about whether that fibre could have come from a Commodore or could have come from this type of Telstra shorts. So it's not the actual provenance in, in terms of whether that fibre is, is is that fibre, but it's the, co- the the continuity of them. So you yeah. know, whether those fibres could have got onto exhibits in an, in another way or whether it could be from another source, so another Commodore or another pair of those Telstra shorts, is there any possibility that they could have come into contact with any of those victims? So that's that's basically where January, February, March and maybe April are going to go, um, depending on how long we go. Then we've got DNA, um, and then we've got, you know, uh, uh, there'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be stuff about the knife, there'll be some mm-hmm. stuff about the... Um, the, the they're going to bring even some criminal, you know, statistics in to, to try and show, um, you know, whether this these three murders were you know, part of a bigger series, possibly, or whether they were self-contained. So there's a long, long way to go. Um, it, although we've gone through all these civilian witnesses quite quickly, um, yeah, there, there is there is a long, long evidentiary road ahead. Yeah, it really is the most extraordinary trial we've ever seen. And, and, you know, you can understand why people are calling it the trial of the century. It's extraordinary. Yeah, and I think at times in January and February, we're going to feel like it's going to go, go for, for a century. century. <laughs> because it's, it's, going to be very, um, it's going to be very intense. But, um, but you know, um, it's, it's work that needs to be done. Well, thank you both for your hard yards over the past three and a half weeks. You've both been incredible and, um, you know, providing us with these extraordinary details. And, of course, you're not just doing podcasts. You're writing extensive um, articles for the West Australian newspaper. And, Alison, of course, you're reporting for Seven News and, and there's online. And so there is a lot of work going on apart from this. So we really do appreciate your time every day running out of court and keeping us up to date with all these details. So thank you both. And thanks to everyone who's been listening in. Um, We will be checking emails over the Christmas break. So you can continue to contact us on claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. And we'll also probably be dropping a few bonus episodes. So keep an eye out for those. And from all of us, have a great Christmas. We'll speak to you again Monday 6th of January when the trial resumes. And we return with Claremont in conversation. See you then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiorlo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.